0: As I was growing up, I have some very distinct memories that most of the days growing up when I was in school, my dad was gone and off to work before we awoke. But on Sundays, it was always his job to wake us up. And since he was going to be at home and we were going to prepare to come to church. My dad always said the same thing. Rise and shine. He'd throw open the door, flip the lights on, rise and shine. And that was the cue. It was time to wake up. And I knew that his next action was to go to make us breakfast, which comprised of the very healthy pecan twirls, if you've ever seen those, that Dad was so professionally microwave and put butter on. But that phrase, rise and shine, specifically because it was a Sunday. That is our theme this Easter because it is the day that God announces to the world and all of history that Jesus is risen. And then there's a call for us to rise and shine. And the teaser is this. We're going to find that message in our Thessalonian study. The one that we've been in. And so on Easter, I'm going to keep preaching Thessalonians. And you're going to see what Paul has to say about this idea of what it means to live into this new day where God has declared, rise and shine. So I want you to be praying about Easter. I want you to be preparing yourself for Easter. And I want you to be thinking about who you can invite to join us on that day. Granted, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ every single Sunday that we gather But there is something powerful about, even if it takes a holiday, for the world to look this direction, we'll take it. And there's an opportunity for you to invite somebody. We're already filling this room up, so we're going to sit close, and we're going to sing loud, and we're going to share what it means to rise and shine. So I want you to be a part of that, be praying and in preparation for that. Today, we're going to continue in this... Every day, disciple every day. And we've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote to a young church. Remember, Paul spent about three weeks. Three weeks to three months. Somewhere in there in the city of Thessalonica. And the gospel gets a ground hold. It takes root and suddenly a church forms up. And now Paul, who had to leave them unexpectedly, is writing back to them because he's heard that they're not only surviving, but they're thriving. And last week, we looked in this letter that he's writing to this thriving church, and he's basically telling them to keep on keeping on, and here's some of the secret sauce that's going into your life as a disciple, that's going into your life as a church. And what I want to remind us of from last week is, we looked at the part where Paul is praying for them, and we decided that every day, disciples pray For each other. You need to be praying for someone. And you need someone praying for you. And I was so personally blessed by this. I had multiple of you reach out to me during the week. Either through a a text message or a phone call or invitation for coffee. To sit down and say, what can I pray for you about? And that just puts lots of fuel into my tank. And I am so grateful and I begin to wonder what is God doing across in all the different relationships that we have in this room and for those watching us online as we're praying for each other and holding what God is calling us to. So today we're going to continue looking at what Paul's doing. We're just going to move right into chapter 4 and if you have your Bibles I want you to open to Thessalonians chapter 4. If you've got one of our scripture journals I hope you're using that. That's page 12. Our students... Every week, they've got their Scripture Bibles, not just the journals of the letter we're in, but the entire Bible. And so that's going to be on page 1497, uh, if you're looking in that. That's where you'll find Paul's message for us today. Now, I'm going to tell you a bit of a note on today's message before we get into it you're going to see how relevant what Paul wrote approximately 2,000 years ago is to our world today. You perhaps have heard me say before that I believe in the 21st century, we are living in cultural dynamics in this atmosphere, this society, this culture that we live in is more closely associated to the first century when this document was written, than any century in between. And what that does is, that means it it doesn't say something brand new to us, but it gives us a new set of ears with which to hear these timeless words of God. And as we get into it, you're going to see that where Paul is going to challenge us today is in the world of sexual intimacy in the arena of sexual intimacy. And so I at least want to preface this with, I realize that any time we go into a place like this, that you might perhaps already have some wounds in your life. You may have already have some shame in that area. And I want you to know that it is not my goal, nor is it Paul's goal, as he writes this letter to ...somehow pile on to your wound and your pain and your grief. That's not the intended message. And I just want to preface that up front... ...because we're going to say some things plainly and straightforwardly... ...but I want you to hear the message of grace in the middle of that. And so if this somehow describes you... ...and there's something, part of your life... ...that this touches on a very sensitive place... I understand that. But like we began this entire service, do not miss the statement and the conviction of truth that His love endures forever. So I'm going to ask some grace from you on my part that you understand my intent is not to pile on some kind of hurt. My, My intent is not to twist the knife deeper. But my intent is to take these words that are so meaningful that we're inspired by God because God loves us enough to give us some instruction in this area and a calling in this area. And we'll figure out why it matters at the end because Paul's going to tell us why it matters. So with that, First Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 1. And I hope you are following along and you're going to see me always, I'll throw some of the scriptures up here in yellow. That's Not necessarily the words that Jesus said... ...that's not like the red letter edition... ...but that's some words that I want you to pay attention to... ...and if you want to circle and highlight them... ...I really encourage that... ...because those are the ones we're going to unpack. He says this... Finally then brothers... ...we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus... ...that as you receive from us... ...how you ought to walk and to please God... ...just as you're doing... ...that you do so more and more. Remember... Paul has heard a report from them, and Paul's initial fear, his anxiety was, that he had to leave town because of the persecution, that this brand new church would not be able to stand up. These disciples, these followers of Jesus, would be so fresh, so childlike in their faith, that this whole thing was going to crumble. And Paul receives word from Timothy, no, 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 that this church is now thriving and Paul is ecstatic about it. And so he writes this letter. And he wants to encourage them and tell them to keep on keeping on. This is what the, that you do so more and more. And you're going to see this phrase come up more than once in Thessalonians. He's going to keep encouraging them with this. And what he's telling them is, says, you received from us. Okay, this is the gospel message that he preached. You received from us. How you ought to walk and to please God. One of the metaphors, one of the images that we have as you are a Christian, as you're a follower of Jesus, is this idea of walking your faith. Walking in the Lord. Walk the talk, maybe you've heard it that way. But I love this imagery because it. Counteract so much of what comes across as if you come to God... ...what God really wants you to do is feel lots and lots and lots of guilt. That what God is, is He's actually in the shame game. That if you come to church, or maybe it's because you've been around some church people... ...and you got the impression, or you got the notion somewhere along the way... ...and maybe you even heard it from a guy that does what I do and preach that God's ultimately up there waiting for you to mess up. And so what you're supposed to do is that you're supposed to really try to figure out what all the rules are, what's all the instructions, what's all the things that I've all the boxes that I've got to check off, and then you've got to do that perfectly. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But this idea that what God is really after is he's got his long checklist of rules. And it's just, he's always looking to see how you measure up. But think of the walking metaphor. This idea, and you'll also see it, Paul will talk about it, as a race to be run. But it's a different way, completely different way, of approaching what your faith life can look like. And the distinction that I want to put is this. When we think of it in terms of walking, it... ...positions two different things together... ...and that's the idea of trying to be a Christian... ...versus training to be a Christian. And when you're trying... ...what you're doing is... ...you're using your own might. You're using your own effort. You're using your own um, energy. And so the idea is that you wake up in the morning... ...and you say to yourself... ...today I'm going to try. I'm going to try really, really, really hard. And you're... Lord, Help me today to be faithful all day long. I'm going to try, 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 try. And then somewhere about 30 seconds after you put a foot on the ground, you've already messed that up, right? Because you have children. (laughs) Or your spouse is driving you crazy. It's like the whole day is a wash at that point. But if you're training, that's a different mindset. See... If you've ever got into uh, this idea of like running, Erica coast cross-country. Uh, so I got really interested in the cross-country event and this idea of running and, and how you would go these, these longer distances. You don't try at cross-country. You don't say, well, I tried it. Okay, If you tried it, you had the wrong mindset. See, trying would mean that the gun goes off, you're out of the start, you're running, you make it a mile and a half... And then you stumble and fall. And you go, well, I failed. I give up. I'm done. But if you're training, if you're training, gun goes off, you begin to run. Or you're on a practice run. And then you stumble and fall. You don't give up and march your way back to the beginning like it's some kind of fault. Like it's some kind of foul. No, you pick up. And you begin to move forward again. That's why I love this idea of walking. If you've ever heard of the author and pastor Eugene Peterson... He has an entire book that I would definitely recommend around this idea. And the title of the book says everything. That discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And you see your life as in training... And so what I'd want you to take away from this first part, what Paul is saying is he I want you to walk with the Lord. I want you to be in training with Him. Every day He's forming you, and He's forming you. And that, on the days that you encounter great difficulty, He's forming you. On the days that you slip... It's not a sense. I mean, there may be some regret and there may be some embarrassment there, but it's not like it's a default and everything goes back to the beginning. You just got to try again. And God's going, well, let's see if you can make it this time. He's training you. And every day, the training becomes a transformation into the image of Christ. And so the takeaway is this. Every day, disciples understand they are in training to live for Christ. And this is a completely different way to live I got into running myself um, several years back I was never fast at it Loved to do these trail runs these half marathons I never got fast in it you know the cool thing about a half marathon is we all line up and then there's some there's a well there's two kinds of there's two kind of guys that run a half marathon okay there's those that run with their shirts off and those that run their shirts on. <laughs> okay. I am a shirt-on hoodie guy, okay? But we start, the run, The gun goes off, we all go running. At some point, oftentimes, it's a halfway out and a halfway back, and so there's a point where you start seeing people that are way out in front of you. And so I, I was running the marathon one year with Scott Seal up in, up in Waco, and it doubles back on itself. And so I could always judge how well I was doing by how soon was I going to see that guy passing me. You know, back. And and it wasn't long, and here he was. You know, I'm still not at the halfway mark yet, and he's already gone and back. And this guy comes running, and he was lean, and he was thin, and he had his shirt off, and he wasn't breaking stride, and he was just moving like a gazelle. I mean, it didn't look like a gazelle. I'm like, you know, just about to... Die, you know, you know, over here, and he just moving past. I'm like, do you know what happened when I crossed the the finish line? They gave me the same medal he got. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the point of the race. We train in this endeavor of following Christ. And the point is not, am I faster than you? Or are you faster than me? The point is that we're all focused on finishing well. That Christ has called us to. And that's what Paul wants for this church. He's wanting them to finish well. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to go into a teaching And one of the things that they're struggling with or is going to challenge them to not finish well is some of the stuff that challenges us to not finish well. So if you would, let's keep going. He wants them to finish well. He wants them to walk in a way that's pleasing to God. And so he says in verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord. We know what instructions. So he's about to give us some more instructions And this is going to get really practical, but he's going to use some words. And here's the first one. Next verse. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now let's stop and talk about that word just for a second. You're going to see, in the passage I'm about to read, you're going to see this word or the meaning of this word show up about three times. Sanctification is simply a way to say, set apart. It's also the word we use for holy. Holy. This is what holy means. Holy, so often we mistakenly think that what holy means is perfect. It doesn't mean perfect. Now, it has some echoes of that. It talks about being full and complete, but its core meaning is that something that is holy is set apart. And when we talk about holiness, that's just talking about something set-apartness. And Paul is going to talk about how do you have a life that's set apart, that's dedicated to something else. There are parts of your life, there's things in your environment that are set apart. You know, again, if I come over to your house and I eat dinner with you, perhaps your place is like my your home's like my home. When we go to sit down, I'm going to ask a question. Where do I sit? Because I'm going to assume that there's some level around the table that everybody has their place that's been set apart for them. Now, that's kind of a low-level set-apartness. I don't expect that if I were to sit down in your particular chair, you would be that upset with me. And then maybe if we moved into the living room, I sat down somewhere on the couch. I don't think I would you'd be that upset with me if I sat you know on your particular seat kind of a low level thing but what you wouldn't be happy with is if I went to the bathroom and used your toothbrush <laughs> that's a high level of set apartness right paul is going to make a case for them that that he wants them to live a high level of set apart distinct called to something in this passage. So with that understanding, I'm going to read through 4-3 and through this next section where he's going to talk about our sexual lives. And it's going to begin with this, and I want you to pay attention. I'm going to throw some of the spots up here that I want you to see those words, and especially anytime you see this holiness idea, circle it, highlight it. For this is the will of God, your sanctification "...us for impurity, but in holiness." It just keeps coming back up. "...therefore, whoever disregards this... ...disregards not man, but God... ...who gives His Holy Spirit to you." Very quickly. Back in verse 4, you abstain from sexual immorality. Let me give you the background going on in Thessalonica... I don't think it would be a hard case to make in today's world that we live in a sex-saturated culture. The ethics around sex, the morals around sex, the, the philosophy that's around sex today is all over the map. We have great debates going on. I don't mean just like good ones. I mean it's just intense debates going on about what should guide us sexually. It was exactly the same in Thessalonica. It was exactly the same in the Roman world. It Sex was transactional. Sex was distinctly for the pursuit of personal gratification. It, it was so permeated the culture that it was not unheard of. In fact, very common in pagan temples where they worshipped the Roman gods that they would employ what they call temple prostitutes so that part of worship would also be a sexual experience. Marriage was transactional. It it was not uncommon. In fact, it was pretty well assumed that any man of any type of wealth or power also had mistresses and concubines. And, And it wasn't whispered about Awkwardly. That's just the way it was. And so Paul sees this small church, this young church, that some of them in the church had come not just from the Jewish faith into Christianity, but they had come from the pagan faith into Christianity. And he knows that this is going to be a challenge to them, and so he writes these three, four verses right here because he wants them to understand this is a high-level set-apartness Holiness idea. And so he says, I want you to abstain from sexual immorality. That word, I don't do the Greek very often, but this is definitely helpful for us to do this. If you're familiar with it, that is the Greek word porneia. Porneia is this concept of anything that would be considered sexually illicit. Anything that would be outside the intent. And in in the Jewish world, this would have been very, very clear. And so he uses this word porneia, and it is the word that we get porn from. Sexual immorality. In fact, the word pornography, the the graphy part is, is to see or to write, and used with photography, pictures, images. Pornography is sexual immorality that's produced, that's seen, it's written, it's photographed. This is the word we, get. and so if you want to write a word next to sexual morality, porn, and when he uses that, it's not just simply the narrow definition that we would have today of, of websites and magazines and videos, it's the sense of anything that would come under this realm. It's, it's an incredible umbrella word that says, There is a way for sex that God has designed. Everything else outside of that is porneia. Everything outside of that is outside of God's design for sex. And so he is wanting this holy and set-apartness from it. And see, oftentimes for Christians, the idea that we somehow get the idea that, that God is really against sex. And the response to that is God designed sex. He created it. But just like an illustration I've used before, he created it for a certain context. And this is what Paul's getting at. Don't take your clues from the world. It's in a certain context. We have a fireplace, an outdoor fire pit. I love that outdoor fireplace. It's incredible. On a cool night, the crackle, Of that fire. The warmth that it puts off. The enjoyment of that. But what's not good is to grab logs out of the fire and go running through the house. Because it violates the context for which it was intended. This is what Paul is warning against. And so Paul is saying, you cannot take your clues. You cannot take your information from the culture. ...around you. This is a set-apartness issue. You're going to walk a certain way... ...and your walk will look different... ...and be in a different direction... ...than those around you. And so... ...what Paul... this, ...well, let me just say it this way. Consistently throughout the New Testament... ...because I know that this is a... ...hotly debated issue in our world right now. Consistently... Throughout the New Testament, the sexual ethic that is taught is that sexual intimacy is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. This is what Paul consistently calls for again and again and again. And it's consistent with all the New Testament writers. This is that context. And Paul saying sex has a set-apartness to it. And it's not to be a low-level, trivial set-apart. This is not who sits at what place at the table. This is high-level, set-apart. And I would contend that outside of marriage, it would be hard to make the case that sex is not simply transactional. There's just a sense of gratification, and that's what I'm pursuing. So sexual intimacy is between a man and woman in the context of marriage. All others are called to celibacy. That, and so, whether you're married or whether you're single, Paul is still calling you into this high-level holiness set-apartness. Because it will affect how you host your marriage. It will affect how you date. It will affect how you treat someone of the opposite sex. It will treat how you what you teach your kids It will permeate all that you do. Paul finishes this way. He changes over and says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For then, indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Again, keep on keeping on. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And we aspire and to aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before the outsiders. You see how it comes back to that idea? Walk before God? This part, he's instructing them to care for one another. Work with your hands, produce, don't simply be dependent on somebody else, as is so many in their culture were. And then Paul tells us to live these quiet lives. And it's in your quietly living this out, this holiness, this set apartness, walking this way, this long obedience in the same direction. Paul says, There's the power. There's the impact. There's how you change the world. Because notice what he said. Here's the reason. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. Paul is writing to a church that has no political power, no influence in the marketplace, no influence in able to keep other businesses closed, no influence on on what kind of legislation is passed. They have no influence They are a small group of people against the Roman Empire, small against the city of Thessalonica by itself because this is a major city. And yet Paul says, you walk this way because this is how you demonstrate whose you are. Think of a couple of quotes from Francis of Assisi. He says this. Here's, here's what's going on. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Your walk matters. He also says this. The deeds you do may be the only sermon a person hears today. Your walk matters. And for Paul, specifically, how we go about living out our sexual lives matters how spouses interact with one another matters how your dating habits matter how you treat that boy or girl you like across the classroom matters the kind of entertainment that you're willing to consume both publicly and privately matters. Paul says, treat it holy. Last takeaway is this then. Every day, disciples demonstrate the gospel. You have an opportunity every single morning as you move through your day to be a walking image Of the gospel of Jesus. Paul would tell us. Do that. More and more. And don't take that for granted.